according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Proverbs 14. We got a good start on Proverbs 14 last week. Didn't get much past verse 1, though, did we? Uh, A wise woman, the wise woman, builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And so there's two halves there. And uh, you can read this verse several different ways. You can view the A part and the B part as if they were two different women, or you can view the A part and the B part as if they are the same woman on two different days. Uh, And I think it's useful to read them that way, to read, uh, you know, either way. Uh, because it's true for any woman, for any man, we have our, our our seasons when we're walking in wisdom, and then we have our seasons when uh, we're not, and uh, and so we can uh, we can accept that as well. Uh, before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer to uh, set aside our distractions, to humble ourselves under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we call upon your faithfulness as we once again open the scriptures. Father, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter 14 begins with an inclusio. Remember what an inclusio is? It's like a sandwich. It's got a top slice of bread, a bottom slice of bread, and the the meat is right there in the middle. And so uh, we got verse 1, we got verse 3. And uh, the words here that form the inclusio that show you it's a conceptual uh, poetry that we're dealing with here. Hebrew poetry is not like what we're accustomed to, perhaps. Uh, They don't necessarily rhyme. We're not looking for rhyming words. It's not roses are red, violets are blue. But uh, you will have thematic parallelism that happens, for example, in the A part and the B part of a verse, or from one verse to another verse in contrast. And so we see it here with uh, the wise woman in verse 1, and it comes back again in verse 3 with the lips of the wise. And that would be the wise man, actually, by the way. Uh, In Hebrew, of course, we get a lot of help when you have a a noun that's either masculine or feminine. And uh, it's the noun is feminine in uh, verse 1. That's why we translate, it's feminine plural, by the way. That's why we render it as wise woman and should be wise women. And uh, there's a whole grammatical puzzle there I won't get into this morning. But um, the wise woman builds her house, and the parallel in verse 3 is the lips of the wise. That's the wise man. And we have, that's why if we're going to be picking on the women in verse 1, we're picking on the men in verse 3. Now, contrasted, of course, with the foolish, not only within verse 1, as the A part and B part are contrasted, the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. But then in verse 3, again, we have the foolish. The mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride or a rod for his back. Again, it's a grammatical puzzle. It's a manuscript puzzle. It's a question that has to be resolved. I prefer the reading a rod uh, of, uh, of uh, pride. The mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride. And that's uh, something we have to address when we get to the husbands, the fathers, the men there in verse 3. Anyway, so that's the poetry of it, linking verse 1 and verse 3 in a a contrast. And so what's in the middle? What's the meat of this sandwich? 
the meat of the sandwich is verse 2. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. And uh, that's where the meat of this inclusio comes, is the application that's very simple to draw out of verse 2 and uh, in the straightforward way that it is. And we're going to tackle that here uh, this morning. All right, so last week we talked about wives and mothers. They are the women that are either building the house or destroying the house, either construction or destruction as the case may be. And uh, remember that in terms of house building, we're not necessarily thinking in uh, lumberjack terms or uh, in, uh, in uh, hard hat and tools, uh, that uh, the building of a home, if that helps, as opposed to the building of a house, references, of course, uh, the children, uh, uh, the uh, other family members, and it's primarily the women that have this blessing from the Lord in their wisdom applications that result in the edification of an entire household. And that, uh, that is the, uh, the design there. The men, we're not leaving them off the hook, or we're not saying that they don't have a role. A man can clearly tear down his house just as well as a woman can tear down a house. But the stress in this, in this text is with respect to the woman and what her wisdom does as a blessing by association to those in her household, or a cursing by association to those in her household. If she is the contentious woman that's the drip, 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 drip that never stops, then uh, that's, uh, that's the application there. So why is it the women more so than the men? One thing I didn't stress last week was the fact that uh, in the ancient world, and even today, but more so in the ancient world, men were often gone, all right? It's not like you know, a business trip and they're back two days later or three days later. We're talking weeks or months. A man goes to war and he's back in weeks or months or he never comes back in the, in the aspect there. And even in the course of normal duties, they're going to take the sheep from the lower fields up to the higher fields and they may be gone again for days or weeks on end before they come back. And so oftentimes um, it is the mother that's holding the household together during the uh, the frequent times of the man's absence. Anyway, so we went through that. Either constructive or destructive to the household they manage. And they are the managers. They are the leaders. They are the, the, uh, the uh, what we would call uh, the, the, the pilots. If you did the study on the spiritual gift of, of administration, that you're piloting a ship through difficult waters. And that's the role of managing a household. All right, our attitude towards the Lord shapes our walk. We either fear the Lord or we despise Him. And it really is put in those blunt terms there in verse 2 that uh, there's a fear of the Lord and then there's the despise of the Lord and uh, the despising. And it comes to, to those sharp opposite realities. And sometimes um, it's useful to imitate the Scriptures and use the same language yourself when you are discussing things with other believers as far as their devotion to the Lord, as their hunger for the Word of God, their passion for not missing a prayer meeting or not missing a Bible class or, or being a part of the, of the saints. And, and when that starts to drift, all right, remind yourself that the Bible puts these things in stark contrast. I call it the language of extreme, uh, for example, where loving the Lord your God is put in contrast with hating father and mother, right? Jesus uses that rhetoric as, as a means to communicate. He says, if you don't hate your mother and father, then you don't love, you don't love God. Okay? And so 
How do we wrap our minds around that? You want me to hate my mom? How, how does this work? Okay, so we identify the, the rhetoric when, when language of extreme is used to drive that point home and to paint that contrast appropriately. And so if you do not fear the Lord and, and put it to that extreme, or if your fear of the Lord has gotten mushy lately, okay, it's, it's a little fear. It's, uh, yeah, it's still mostly a fear, but it's also kind of lukewarm maybe in, in a sense, okay? Does this make sense? You know what I'm talking about? All right. So you're just not firmly on fire. Well, realize that that's a step towards this other direction. It's a step towards despising him. It's a step towards despising him. That's where it's going. And since this text is placing these as the only two alternatives, then we need to ask ourselves, which side of this line are we we, uh, coming down on in any event? He who walks in his uprightness, whose uprightness is this? Fears the Lord. And uh, we have a pronoun like his, are we talking about the walker or are we talking about God? Is it he who walks in God's uprightness or he who walks in his own personal uprightness? That becomes a study on its own. That's how I read it. I think that's the natural reading of it. And this is where, see here's the thing, we want God's standard of righteousness to be our standard of righteousness. We want to uh, personalize it and not just keep it external. If we just keep it external for our entire walk, well then I think that diminishes the the value. Well, because that's God's righteousness. No, I want it to be my righteousness. I'm going to walk in my uprightness because I have adopted God's uprightness for my own. So he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is devious, notice, in his ways. Again, that's the one who's walking. He who is devious in his ways despises him. That's the contrast. And so, you know, uh, if that becomes a rule of thumb, we were talking about rules of thumb on Sunday, and Paul said, I don't know what to choose, uh, whether I should live or whether I should die. If I To live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, I don't know which one to pick. I'm being hard-pressed on both sides. But then he finally answered that question. He said, you know, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And he realized on behalf of the Philippians that if he lived longer, then he could bear more fruit and bless them. That the Philippian believers were going to be edified and blessed and built up and their joy would abound and the other effects would happen there. And so Paul used that as his rule of thumb. We talk about these rules of thumb, okay? Or rule of thumbs. No, rules of thumb. I like that better. We have these various rules of thumb. This verse, I think, is a huge rule of thumb. If, if I'm faced with a choice or an option or there's just something in my life I'm trying to evaluate, ask myself, this thing I'm doing, does it reflect that I fear the Lord or does it reflect that I despise Him? And I think it comes down like that. All right. In addition to Proverbs 14.2, we can back up. We had a concept previously in chapter 13 with despising versus fear. You remember this one? The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. And we had a lot of teaching right out of that verse as we discussed what does it mean to despise the word of God? And and why is it so black and white? (laughs) Why does it go from fearing the, uh, the Lord to despising the word just like that? Well, I think that's consistent. I think it's consistent throughout Old and New Testament alike. 
I think 2 Timothy talks about falling away from the faith, doing what? Paying attention to demons, to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. You know, and so um, it's, it's not just, uh, I think we, we, we justify things or we feel better if we can allow a middle ground kind of thing. If we can say, well, you know, I'm just drifting. Well, I'm not as hungry as I was, but I still love Jesus. I'm, I'm not as hungry as I used to be, but you know. And, and, and so we justify it by saying that, that it's still positive volition, but it's just not as positive. And is that, is that justification? Is that, is, does the Bible sanction that? Or does the Bible say when you fall away from the faith, you're paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons? Does the Bible say that if you don't fear the Lord, you despise the Lord? It seems to me that these passages are painting these contrasts in very sharp, vivid detail. And that wor- that's worth uh, considering as well. And so, again, um, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. And the one who despises the Lord, what do you think the consequences are there? <laughs> okay? Accountability. Instant accountability. And uh, the hand of God's judgment that then soon comes. And then to the husbands and the fathers in verse 3. Husbands and fathers. Now again, it may not be as evident that we're talking about husbands and fathers here other than the poetic structure of the passage. If we didn't see the way that verse 1 and verse 3 tie together the way that they do, then we might not be so quick to observe that these are the men that are being highlighted. Because if we just take the verse by itself, in the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back or is a rod of, of pride, uh, but the lips of the wise will protect them, uh, we may not even give it a thought that we're talking about men or husbands or, or the damage they do to their households in, uh, in the process. That's why, again, I think it's useful to see the syntax, to see the structure of the poetry and to observe the, the parallelisms that tie it together there. So in my mind, there's no question at all that we're talking about the damage that gets done from a prideful father versus the protection that's offered from a humble father and the blessings there. So husbands and fathers are either prideful or they're protective to the house that they head. And so um, I like that. I like the way it's expressed. I like the way that contrasts with point A. Because the wives and mothers are either constructive or destructive to the household they manage And the husbands then are either prideful or protective to the household that they head. And uh, I think that brings out the full uh, contrast that the the chapter is dealing with here. All right, so an illustration for a prideful husband. How about the fool? How about Nabal? When we see the damage that's done there in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 2. And we can illustrate many times Old Testament, New Testament, current events, uh, there's no shortage of illustrations. When a, when a husband is prideful, that, that, expre- that affects his thinking, it, expre- it affects his words, it affects his actions, and the family faces the consequences. The family faces the consequences on that. So, 1 Samuel 25. We'll see what I'm talking about here. We did way back, a long, long time ago in the Life of David series, this chapter got a lot of attention because uh, this is the introduction to Abigail, this is an introduction to a big blessing in David's life. But when David first meets Abigail, she's already married. She's married to Nabal. 
And uh, that's the, the introduction here. So, um, and I don't think it's coincidental either that it happens in the aftermath of Samuel dying. Samuel died and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And then this introduces the, the very first episode for David in a post-Samuel uh, reality. So there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. All right, so there's some work for you. Study the geography and figure out uh, what his absences were like. And the man was very rich and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was sharing his sheep in Carmel. Um, and the man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Okay, so that's kind of an awkward parenthesis, but it comes in between verse 2 and verse 4 there. It came about while he was shearing a sheep in Carmel that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing a sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. So again, you've got to kind of evaluate this and the standards of the ancient world and the structure of how they operated, all right, along the lines of families and clans and tribes, the uh, circumstances uh, when you're dealing with uh, Bedouins, when you're dealing with, um, in David's case, um, a bit of a renegade, uh, a, refuge, uh, a refugee hiding from King Saul and much of his life, other things there. And so you learn to interact with those around you. <laughs> you, you find the allies where you can, and, uh, and you're, you're on guard against the, the dangers of where they might be. And there's no shortage of dangers. And uh, one thing that, that Nabal should be very thankful for is that um, he's had David and his men here not molesting him, not, not, not damaging him, not harming him, not stealing from him, not uh, you know, uh, plundering the, the, the flock, any of that. David and his men have been good neighbors and they've, this has been a, a, a beneficial circumstance. And then that's the backdrop now for David's request that he's making. So, um, again to restate verse 7, I have heard that you have shearers, uh, now your shepherds have been with us and have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please, Give whatever you find at hand to your servants uh, and to your son David. Now this is a marvelous chapter. It's a marvelous introduction to a lot of things. Okay. Sadly though, Nabal is the illustration of the uh, of Proverbs 14.3. Nabal is the illustration of the mouth of pride. All right, And uh, the fool that's, that's going to have not only, not only of course the impact it has on him personally but upon his wife, upon his children, upon his household, upon these very flocks, and uh, the consequences there. So verse 9, when, uh, 
David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? Now here's the mouth of arrogance, okay? This is a mouth of arrogance, a mouth of pride. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, we can answer this question. Who's David? He's a man after God's own heart. He's a hero of Israel. He's the killer of Goliath. He's, he's, uh, <laughs> you know, he's everything Saul, uh, Saul wasn't. Uh, he's, he's the man that Samuel anointed to be the next king of Israel. He's the man whose servants have been guarding you and your sheep this whole time. But he doesn't answer that way. He doesn't think that way. He doesn't think in those terms. He has this scornful rejection of David. Uh, I think it's a reflection of his own um, opinion of himself. Because he was a rich man. He had all these sheep. He was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. That's, you know, that's not small. Okay? So who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Remember about Bethlehem? Remember the Ephrathite? It was a very small clan. It was, it was, it was so small it couldn't even be counted among the clans of, of Judah. So who is, uh, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? So pride is always comparing self with others and how much better you are than them and how useless they are to you. They offer you nothing. Why does he give two hoots about the house of Jesse? It's not going to, you know, what's he going to do? Is he going to give his sons to their daughters, his daughters to their sons? Is he is that going to increase his holdings? Not at all. He, he gets nothing from them, at least as far as he's concerned. Failing to recognize he's already benefited from David and his men in all these recent months and years, maybe, who knows, how long this, uh, this uh, arrangement has been in place. Um, anyway. Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Okay, and that's that that's key, okay, because this we saw the death of Samuel in verse one. And what is what is Nabal assuming here? Okay. Ooh, Samuel's dead. Each there's now many breaking away from his master. What is this is slander on his part. He's assuming that David's up to something nefarious here. That David is, is trying to manipulate things politically and he's making a power move here uh, in the wake of, of Samuel's departure. Okay? I don't know. How, how do we illustrate this? If, if, I don't know. Maybe in the pastoral world if, no, that's, that doesn't happen. You know, it's not like, you know, this, the, so um, Samuel, oh, so Colonel Theme passes away and now there's this political underhanded you know manipulations and ooh how can we uh, how can we politic and how can we maneuver and how can we uh you know try to make a play for the pulpit at Baraka church or something of that nature right okay i'm struggling but uh the point being when he says here there are many each breaking away from his master many servants today who are each breaking away from his master i think that's in in the in the reflection of samuel's death and uh, and if he's suspicious of what David's motives are, I'd, I'd, I'm suspicious of what Nabal's motives are. What's uh, what's Nabal trying to do at this time? Okay, I don't know. I'd, I'd look at this and say, hey, the the greatest prophet since Moses is no longer here. Our nation's in trouble. <laughs> Our nation better get serious about prayer and devotion to Yahweh because we just lost the the greatest prophet since Moses. Anyway. 
Verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shares, give it to men whose origin I do not know? They seem shady. I don't know their background. They're probably thugs. They're probably, you know, just impugning their origin, impugning their legitimacy, impugning whatever. And um, so David's young men retraced their way, went back, they came and told the, him according to all these words. Now this is, this is a tremendous affront and sometimes we lose sight of that. It seems, well, it's no big deal. And because the world we live in sees a lot of this. <laughs> it's kind of commonplace today. Um, Anyway, David has been thoroughly offended, he's been thoroughly insulted, he's been thoroughly mocked and uh, as a servant of the Lord. So David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So uh, hey, those are fighting words. He wants to fight, he's prepared. Okay. Now, David does overreact, don't get me wrong, David is on the verge of making his own mistake here. And so he's going to respond to a mistake with a greater mistake. And thankfully, Abigail keeps him from doing that. All right? So there's a marvelous uh, conclusion to, uh, to this chapter. So he says, get your sword. Each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. So rather than on a defensive basis, look, taking care of himself, defending himself, defending Nabal's flocks, you know, the, the purpose for being armed is for self-defense. Uh, the purpose for being armed is not to go and execute vengeance if somebody insults you. All right. And yet he's on the verge of almost doing that. Thankfully, uh, Abigail. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, and kind of recounts the stories here, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us. And we were not insulted, nor do we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. And so these young men, they know, man, we're happy to have David's band camping out there in the hills. We're happy to have them in, in the neighborhood. We, we can depend upon them. We're not afraid of them. You know, they're the first people we're going to call if we need help for something. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, and all the time we were with them tending the sheep. So uh, anyway, so she comes and uh, her actions here are, are remarkable and uh, she comes before David and she's going to have, a, uh, she's gonna have uh, a blessing here. Um, David, you still see his thinking in verse 21. David said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. He has returned to me evil for good. Okay. Well, maybe he has. That's all true. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belongs to him. <laughs> wow. And this is kind of in the spirit of, of uh, the, the brothers that went in and massacred Shechem, for example. I mean, this is just, this is just human anger that has, has had his pride has been injured. His pride has been injured. And so now the mouth of pride is on the verge of doing something terrible. So Abigail, she hurries, she dismounts, she falls on her face before David, bows herself to the ground. And what's interesting, this is not just a, a weak and boo-hoo and play for sympathy. This is a mature believer that's going to wake him up with doctrine. And I find this interesting. On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. 
She's willing to become the uh, victim. She's willing to accept the wrath. She's willing to be the substitute for substitutionary atonement purposes, right? On me alone be the blame. Nabal's the fool. Nabal's the one that's worthy of death, but execute that on me in his place. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal's the Hebrew word for fool. Um, Nabal is his name, and folly is with him, but I, your maidservant, do not see. I did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. You know, had she been there when it happened, uh, it would have been a different story. Okay? And this is what, again, we, where, where does she live? Where, where does he work? Where's the, the, the distance involved between the, the household and the, and the, uh, the, in Carmel here where the, the episode is taking place? So, now therefore, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, see what she's doing there? Since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And uh, that transition is powerful. I taught this when we went through this and, and that way years ago now in the Life of David series. But she she's, hasn't stopped to let him say a word yet, has she? <laughs> has he... Has he interjected anything here? Has he stopped her in any way? She keeps talking, she keeps talking. But she knows the Lord has restrained him from shedding blood. Right? Every moment he stopped listening to her, he's not over there massacring Nabal and killing all those men. And since he's delayed five minutes, maybe he'll delay ten minutes, maybe he'll delay half an hour, he's listening to what she says. And as the Lord lives and as your soul lives. See, she's got the doctrine, she's got a, a capacity here to, uh, and, and I think it also reflects how well she knows David. She knows David's a man after God's own heart. She knows David is going to respond to this appeal to, uh, to Scripture, to the Lord. So, let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. And please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. And, and so she goes on, by the time we get to David, in verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed, from avenging myself by my own hand. So this chapter actually illustrates the point two different times about husbands and fathers and their mouth of pride. Because Nabal executed his, David wanted to. David would have been just as Nabal as Nabal. Except Abigail stepped in and woke him up. And uh, by her, by the grace of God, God uh, did that. Anyway, God did that. God sent Abigail to deliver that message. And so uh, David blesses her in that regard. All right, so that's the, uh, the illustration there. Then of course the protective component. The protective component, Genesis 18, 19. And you know, this is more than just physical protection, although that would clearly be included. There is the spiritual protection. There is the 
priority that's set. Genesis 18, this is the chapter where uh, the Lord is on His way to um, Sodom. He's on His way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, Abraham stops him and says, hey, let's have dinner, let's talk, what's going on? (laughs) All right. And this is, by the way, this is the background for the hymn we sing, Do Not Pass Me By. Okay? Stop here. I want to have fellowship. And uh, while on others you are calling, do not pass me by. So, um, as they have this fellowship and um, the promise of a child and everything that happens with respect to that. Then verse 16, Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This rhetorical thinking, this, you know, God knows what He's going to do. But the, the, when Moses writes this down, the thought process of God, when he writes this down, it clues us in into, uh, into uh, God's thinking. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Why would God hide from Abraham? Why would God not make His will known? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The point is, Abraham is the, is the beginning of this new, he's the recipient of the, of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the forefather of the Jewish people. Well, the, the stewardship of Israel, what goes with that is you're entrusted with the oracles of God, you are brought on board with God's plan and program, God makes you as a fellow worker in what He's accomplishing. God's not hiding His will. It goes on to say, For I have chosen Him so that He may command His children and His household after Him. See, it starts in the home. It starts in the home. Abraham's role as the head of the Abrahamic covenant, it starts in his own home with his wife, with his children, with his servants, with his household. We have a similar reality in the church age. Uh, a, a man shouldn't be a pastor if he can't be the head of his home. If, uh, if, if he's not the head of his home, if he's, if he's all out of control and the, the wife is out of control and the children are out of control and there's no spiritual guidance going on in that, in that household, why is that? And if that is a problem, then he doesn't need to be pastoring a church, he needs to be getting his household together. But here's a protective function. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him. All right, And read what the rest of this says. Don't, don't be resistant to the, to the patriarchy here. Okay? His wife will help him. She's his helpmate. But he's the one accountable. And uh, he must command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abram what he has spoken about him. Okay, so there's the household responsibilities. And every husband, every father uh, should be mindful of this, the duty they have towards their wives and towards their children. And the wives are there as helpmates to help the husband to, uh, to execute this, this plan to the children, to the household. And so then it goes on and he explains what's happening with Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham is going to be suited to, be, to have impact in his community, right? He's a prayer warrior. He's going, to, he's going to plead on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But the real issue is not the work he's doing in his community. The issue is, is he in his household, in his, uh, among his children and his household after him? So we have uh, the pattern there. How about uh, chapter 24 and verse 6? Chapter 24 and verse 6. See, this is why we say with our Sunday school, we're happy to provide age-appropriate instruction for the children, but that's not in place of what the parents are doing. We're not sub, uh, substitute parents, and it's, you know, father and mother are supposed to be training up that next generation, not the, not the Sunday school department of any local church. Genesis 24, 6. <laughs> um, Abraham is old, and He's not yet uh, arranged for uh, Isaac's marriage, and uh, so he brings in his servant. The one who, by the way, would be his heir if it wasn't for Isaac. The oldest of his household who had charge of all that he owned. Please place your hand under my thigh, and now they're going to enter into this covenant between the two of them. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. This is a protective function that the father has over his adult son. Okay? It's not an 18-year-old stomping his feet and saying, come on, Dad, I'll do what I want to do. I'm a grown man. I'm an adult. I have my own apartment. Um, Anyway, the world was different in the ancient world, but the principles are still applicable. Okay? Even if we don't engage in the same practices... Even if I don't, you know, give six goats to my neighbor and arrange a marriage for my daughter, um, there is still a principle at work that I have a protective function for her until I hand her soul to to her husband. And then he will take over the shepherding role. And no sheep need to be exchanged. (laughs) All right. Or goats or whatever. Um, So, None of these Canaanite girls, are you kidding me? No, there's not a Canaanite girl anywhere that is a helpmate to, uh, to Isaac. But you will go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. You know, young man leaves Washington State, he goes to Texas, he finds the prettiest girl in Texas, and what if she doesn't want to go back to Washington State? Is he stuck in Texas for the rest of his life? <laughs> Probably. All right. Anyway, back to uh, Haram and uh, Padanaram and Abraham here. Um, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me back to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Okay. Now we understand marriage is compromising. There's give and take, and there's there's uh, you know push comes to shove. But what does get pushed and what does get shoved, especially if it's something like the Abrahamic covenant that has land, seed, and blessing, and Isaac has to stay in this land. He is the inheritor of this land. He is the head of this covenant. And so Abram said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. So yeah, we can, we can compromise on some things. All right, and maybe, you know, carpet or drapes or whatever you know there's we can there's things and the husband says hey whatever you want let's go with this or the wife says hey whatever you want let's go with that and we find common ground and we do whatever but in the spiritual priorities and that's what this abrahamic covenant represents here then there's a line in the sand and there's no compromise and this is what it has to be 
And Job has to be willing to stand up and say, you're speaking like one of the foolish women. When Mrs. Job is speaking like one of the foolish women. Okay? And you can't be like Adam just sitting there and eating the fruit he gives, she gives him when he watches her eat it and he knows that it's wrong. He wasn't deceived. So Abraham puts his foot down here and says, no, beware. Do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying to your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. Anyway, this is what he's convinced of. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath, only do not take my son back there. So Abraham is confident. He says, it's not going to happen. But if it does happen, then basically you're free from my oath and make your best choice you can. So the servant uh, placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master. Nowadays we just sign contracts and it's much more it's not quite so awkward putting your hand up under there and you know we just again we don't relate to a lot of this we struggle with a lot of the practices like taking off the sandal the other night and spitting in their face and things like that Um, we think big deal who cares Uh, but and then the placement of the hand under the thigh all right So we have a protective function. Exodus 12, verses 25 through 27. Another illustration. And so Exodus 12, we're talking about um, Passover, we're talking about uh, the Jews being redeemed out of Egypt and um, that uh, Passover is going to be a memorial. Uh, it says in verse 24, you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as He has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? Well, now you have the humble, protective function to be able to communicate doctrine to the next generation. You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. So we've got the opportunity now to pass this on to the next generation. And, And as children come and the next generation comes and the next generation comes, you, you end up further and further away in time. And how long does it take before you have a, a generation that has no concept of walking through the Red Sea on dry ground? Or a generation that has no concept of the Depression or World War II or has no concept of, of uh, poverty in this nation because they've grown up in, a, in, a, in the most prosperous nation the world has ever seen. And they don't understand the the, the sacrifice that provided that. How long does that take? So there is a protective function to be able to convey the heritage and to be able to impress that heritage to the next generation in a way that they recognize that it's their heritage, that they have to carry it forward in their day. 
because they're going to have all this peer pressure everywhere from college to friends to whatever that the things of the past are horrible and now we are the ones we've been waiting for and now we can finally throw off all that all that uh, prejudice and anger and hatred and garbage and, and now the age of Aquarius is ready to unfold and great things are in front of us because we because as they're being brainwashed everything that came before has to be torn down. Alright. There's no value in that at all. They're just a bunch of liars. Alright. So it's a protective function. And this is again when, when you take it back to the man involved that got the whole thing rolling, what does it start with? He's either prideful or he's humble. Nabal was prideful, David was prideful, then David got humbled, thankfully. And uh, we have the consequences there. Let me get back to Proverbs then, because we have this as a theme that's going to come up again after chapter 14. It's going to come back in chapter 16. So again, verse 3, um, in the, the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride. I like that rendering better than a rod for his back. But anyway, consequences for the foolish mouth, and it hurts. And then the lips of the wise will protect them. So your mouth gets you in trouble or the mouth actually helps. <laughs> and not just you personally, husbands, but your wives, your children, your family, your household the extended uh, community impact. Proverbs 16, verses 17 and 18. Proverbs 16, verse 17 says, The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his soul, preserves his life. So what do you want to be? You want to be prideful you want to be humble? You want to be protective or uh, you can let that pride go before destruction. Verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Okay? One of the, probably one of the best known proverbs anywhere in the book. <laughs> Even unbelievers have heard this one before. Pride goes before a fall, right? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So apply that personally but then apply that in family terms. The damage that gets done if the husband is not humble, if the husband is not protective. All right. Then we get verse 4. Hard work is messy. Have you noticed that? I'm going to rephrase verse 4 here a little bit. Where Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you can have the cleanest barn in the world if, until you put your first ox in there, okay? So as long as it's, you're just, uh, you know, but what kind of a farmer are you if you have no oxen? You're a farmer with a clean barn, <laughs> but no work's getting done or very little. Are you, are you pulling the plow yourself? What are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, you're sweating, you're dirty, you're nasty, you're not getting much done. Maybe you can plow a small section of the field. And, uh, but boy, you got, sure got a clean barn. Yeah. So uh, where no oxen are, the manger is clean. Uh, yeah, the manger may be clean, but the manger is also not fulfilling its purpose. Why do you even have a manger? <laughs> you know, if, if, if you're not putting any animals in there, why have it? What are you doing with it? 
And that, uh, that becomes a question too. The manger is not fulfilling its purpose. It's like clean teeth. Uh, there's a passage in Amos that talks about clean teeth. Okay, Amos 4.6 Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos 4, 6. I give, um, let's see. It's a fun chapter. Um, there's cows of Bashan. And uh, some, somebody was asking me the other night because we were talking about the bulls of Bashan in uh, Psalm 22. Jesus was on the cross and he said, many bowls of Bashan have surrounded me. And what's the, what's the imagery of Bashan about? Well, these are the cows of Bashan, not the bowls of Bashan. And yet, they uh, have husbands there. It's a, it's a fun... Let me get past verse 5. Verse 6, But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities. That's not a good thing. I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Yeah, your teeth are clean because you don't have any food. You're not eating anything. So celebrate your clean teeth, um, but clean teeth is not good. Your teeth should be chewing. You should be eating. And uh, then, you know, then when you're done eating, you brush your teeth. Okay? When the When the you're using the oxen, you're plowing your fields, you're getting a lot of work done, and when you're done, you put them back in the manger, and then when they're done, you you got a mess to clean up. Okay? And uh, is that fun? Is that enjoyable? No. But it's better than a, a clean barn. Because look at the work that's getting done. Look at the revenue that's taking place. Look at the increase. Look at uh, everything else that's taking place. So, uh, hard work is messy. And if you're not willing to get your hands messy, why is that? If, when the Father has called us to work. So, under this, I think it's curious. There is revenue. There is revenue and then there is much revenue. And this passage highlights the rab, the much revenue. Tavu, uh, tavua is the word for income, is the word for revenue. Looks like tabua. I prefer to soften the base there after the shawah. So tavua is how I would pronounce it. Tavua would be a better pronunciation. Tavua. And then there's rab tavua. There's uh, profit, there's much profit. And if you don't have any ox, then you're never going to get to this much profit uh, category. And you need to get to this much profit category. This is what we're called to do. And the the uh, work that we're called to do not only is sufficient, but we are to pursue the abundant. This is what equips us to have the abundance and be ready to share. This is what allows us to be grace-oriented towards others. And uh, I'll give this to you under point B, the, uh, the benefits. So there is revenue and then there is much revenue. The word for revenue is tabua, T-E-B-U-W apostrophe A-H. And when you make your apostrophe, make sure it curves to the right, not the left. Okay, it's like a close quote, a single close quote curvature on that, on that apostrophe. If, uh, if it curves the other direction, it's a different Hebrew letter. So make sure it curves to the right. 
Tabuah. It's a silent consonant. It's like the uh, it's like the H in honest. Okay, you don't vocalize it, but you got to close your throat to make that honest. You don't say honest. You say honest. And when you say honest, you've just closed your throat at the start of the of the syllable. And that's what you do with the Aleph. So uh, Tavu'ah is, uh, is the term. Now the, the verb is, is bo, the verb is come. B-O, Aleph, the bo word means to come. And so to come in. And that's what, uh, that's what you have. Uh, a harvest is you're gathering the harvest in. It's an in-gathering or it's an income. Okay? We use the same, like English has the same expression, income, Right? I worked, I got paid, that's my income. That's money that's coming in. Or crops that are coming in, or a harvest that's coming in, or cows that are coming in when the cows come home, or whatever it is. The point is, it's coming in. And when it's here, it's here and it's mine. And this is the, 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 the function for it. And, and so what do I do when it's mine? And how do I then honor the God of grace that blessed me with what came in? How does it go out? Why does it go out? Where does it go out first? It better go out to the Lord first. He gets the first fruits. Okay? And he gets the first fruits even in the very gleanings, the very first fruits of the harvest, before I know what the complete harvest is going to be. <laughs> I don't know how many bushels I'm gathering in, but here's the first fruit, uh, the first fruits, and I'm giving that to the Lord. Okay? As opposed to, well, let's wait till the end of harvest and see how much I got and then see what's left over, and then see what I can afford after you know, this and that gets paid. And then you know, maybe I'll scrape together a couple things to, to throw at Jesus. Okay? No, it's first fruits. And you don't know what kind of harvest is going to be after that. I love that. It's like Elisha telling the woman, yeah, fix you know, make the first cake is for me, you can have the one after that. And she only has enough oil to make one cake. <laughs> okay? And that, that's a beautiful story. And she responded by faith. She made him the first cake and she had enough oil to keep making. Keep making, keep making for her, her son, and survive the famine. All right. Anyway, so there's revenue and there's much revenue. What we have here is the much revenue. And so when it says uh, where the no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. And so there's a principle to be found here is that all right, you can have a clean barn if you volitionally so choose. You can not, uh, you cannot use uh, ox labor on your farm. You can. You can do it all by hand if you want. In fact, you don't even have to have a helpmate. You can be a single man and go do what you do as a single man. No wife, no ox. I mean, but what are you doing when you do that? You are choosing to forsake the blessings of God. God designed a helpmate to be a helpmate. God designed an ox to be an ox. God designed the realms of creation all centered around man's duty to image God. Okay? All going back to Genesis. And so why are ox, oxen designed that way? Why are horses designed that way? Why are dogs designed that way? Why are cats designed that way? And, and so what is the function of these things? How do we use them for the glory of Jesus Christ? Anyway, it's supposed to be um, uh, harnessed for His good pleasure. <clears throat> 
Now, man benefits from the strength of the ox. That's a point. Man benefits from the strength of the ox. And the benefit comes from the income being multiplied. You go from income to much income. You go from tabuna to rob tabuna. Okay? Because you chose to exercise the provision God made. And God gave work animals to be work animals. And so to accept what God provided, to harness it, to employ it, uh, you're going to see a, a multiplication of the work and you're going to see a multiplication of the profit and it, it just it, it grows and it continues to grow and it continues to grow. And you know, based on what you can do with one ox, you can then pair them up with a second ox and then based on what you can do with a team of oxen, then you can put a second pair and a third pair and a fourth pair, up to 20 pair, I mean, I mean functionally. How much more can you then do? This is what God designed. Now, does that mean it gets messy? Yes, it gets messy. There's a lot of ox to shovel, okay? <laughs> and the more oxen you have, the more there is to shovel. When we start having hundreds and thousands of... Uh, and plus you've got to feed them, right? Anyway. So with this right comes responsibility. Proverbs 12.10, a man has regard for the life of his animal. We, ta- we taught that already back in chapter 12. So you can't abuse your animals. If you're abusing your animals, then yes, it's animal cruelty and yes, it's a bad thing. But beyond that, you're also diminishing their willingness to work, their capacity to work the productivity that they would offer, the profit that they would generate. And I'm out of time. I just saw it's 11 o'clock. Where does the time go? All right. So next week, Lord willing, rapture pending, um, bring your PETA friends, if you would, um, your animal rights people. The, um, we're going to talk about why God gave us animals and what do we do with our animals. And the function for, and we'll, we'll use oxen because that's what this passage is talking about, but you can extrapolate it to dogs or cats or ferrets or guinea pigs or hamsters or whatever you have. Um, the, uh, the design, okay, in the creation mandate to rule, to subdue the earth. Why? And how do animals help us with that? All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. For your faithfulness. Looking forward to learning these lessons. I thank you for the patterns we have in wisdom so that we can have uh, wise women, not foolish women as uh, wives and mothers, so we can have wise and humble husbands, not foolish and prideful husbands and fathers. Uh, Father, um, open up these principles of Scripture and we can make the uh, appropriate application in, in our daily life. We thank you, Father, and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.